There's a lot to say when buying a new home or car, but only one thing to say that can help you protect them. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And just like that, a State Farm agent will be there to help you choose the coverage you need, no matter where you are in life. When you need coverage options, your State Farm agent is there to help, on the phone or in person. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Welcome to the Nerdist Podcast number 684. Katie, I don't know if you're familiar with the Nerdist Podcast. What? Podcast? Occasionally, we do a live uh, stand-up comedy show. Which is very similar to all the stand-up specials that I watched when I was growing up, mm-hmm. which is why we started the Nerdist Stand-Up Cluster. Now, we've done a couple of these, and uh, we've had a lot of great folks on there. Your Pete Holmeses, your, uh, your Ali Wongs. Ron your Funches. Ron Funches, your Rory Scovels. Yeah, a lot uh, of good people on this. And we are doing another one Monday, June 8th at Meltdown in Los Angeles. Tickets are available at nerdmeltla.com. And uh, here's who's confirmed so far. James Adomian. Oh, awesome. Our own Kyle Clark going to be Kyle? performing. I've Kyle never heard Clark? of him. What? Kyle Clark. No. He's our walk-around Muppet. Cameron Esposito, who's oh, awesome. Great. Al Jackson. I f- oh, I fucking love Al Jackson. He's so funny. Megan Nuringer. Oh, nice. Sarah Schaefer. Sarah. Dave Thomason, who uh, he is writes a, in the show. He's a writer yeah. on At Midnight. Baron Vaughn. Oh, nice. And then, uh, and then the winner of the Totino's uh, yeah. Favorite Comedian Search, which is... Uh, I believe there are not taking entry. We're no, not taking not entries anymore. Done. That ended May 31st. But uh, we put out the call. Totino's uh, essentially sponsored the stand-up cluster. And so we put out the call to submit stand-up videos. And then we're going to pick one person to get uh, that slot to really discover someone that we didn't know before. Mm-hmm. Put them on the, uh, on the stand-up cluster. And that person's going to do an opening set for me at Comic-Con in San Diego on Friday. As part of the Fun Comfortable Tour. That's a good so, deal. Yeah, so nerdmeltla.com. Uh, tickets to come see the, sta- the, the, the recording of the stand-up cluster. June 8th, Monday, 9 p.m. at uh, Meltdown, NerdMelt. Um, so there you go. And it's cheap. Happens. It's only like 8 bucks, right? It's like 8 bucks. Yeah. Yeah, I almost wanted to make the show free, but then I, I didn't want... The reason that I made it even $8 is because I didn't want a bunch of people just going, oh, free show, and then just squatting on the tickets. Yeah. There is a little bit of value in have, having people pay a little bit of money, but eight bucks to see That's nothing. a bunch of amazing comedians and you, and so. and, uh, and, uh, and then it's going to be uh, you know a, basically a live, a live podcast. Then um, that uh, I thought that was I thought that was not an uh, an unreasonable request. It's not. I think it's fun. What do you got going on over there on the Nerdist Community Cockboard? Uh, the JV Club, which is hosted by Janet Varney, which is an amazing podcast that we have. Her Boys of Summer series is back in the first episode. Features Colin Hanks and is really good. And you can find it now on Nerdist.com or the, by searching the JV Club on iTunes. I do believe I am doing it soon. Are you? Yeah, You're going to be a boy of summer. I'm going to be a boy of summer. That's fun. It is going to be fun. Yeah. I like that she does those. It, it 
mixes it up a bit. It's real fun. Her Bar- podcast is great. Barney's the best. Uh, Craig Tomashoff, or Tomashoff, I apologize if I'm butchering your name, is working on a book that he would love to share with the Nerdist community. He's traveling around the country for several weeks to meet real people who are running for president. He's found 15 people of very different backgrounds, all of whom are running for president as a way of finding personal redemption of one sort of another. Some people have funny stories to tell, some that are more tragic, but they're all fascinating. And you can go to facebook.com slash the candidates to find out more. And that's C-A-N-T-I-D-A-T-E-S. Candidates. Great. Mm-hmm. That is what's happening in the Nerdist community. Cork board, send your event to events at Nerdist.com. Yeah. Email that shit. This episode is Mike Judge. Oh, man, he was rad. He was so cool. You know, like watching... Because occasionally he would dip into a voice. Yeah. And watching your sheer delight. Well, because they never did anything Beavis and Butthead related. Yeah. And, just like and he signed, it. he signed, he drew uh, Butthead oh, in our, in our That's guest That's all book. I used to watch when I was a kid. But besides Beavis and Butthead, Mike Judge is one of the smartest. Genius. <laughs> Anyone who came up with idiocracy and... Office Space. If he had just genius. made Office yeah. Space. <laughs> if he had just made Idiocracy. But Silicon uh, Valley is... Oh, it's so good. I mean, you're probably watching the show. If you listen to the podcast, you probably watch Silicon Valley. If you're not, you should. It is, um, pr- I want to say, the best comedy on television right now. Sunday nights, 10 p.m. on HBO. Or you can watch it on the HBO Go or HBO, HBO Now, now yeah. app. So uh, uh, Mike Judge, it was an honor to have him here. And I just... I. I love watching a bunch of my friends be super funny and successful, and I'm so I'm proud as much as I am a fan of the of, of the show. But yeah, definitely. Mike Judge was great, and the guy's the, the guy's just good at everything he does. Like when you look at all the stuff that he's done, he's he's, he's just a genius. Much as good, he's pretty much as good at everything <laughs> he does. And watch this episode with your ears, number six eighty four. I fucked it up, and I didn't want to go back That's and do fine. it again. Okay, Katie, watch it with your ears. Let's just stick all with right, it. All right. You know, when Prince fucks something up, he does it again, so people think it's on purpose. So watch with your ears. <laughs> Episode number 684, Mike Judge. Now entering Nerdist.com. He's dead to me. That's it. I don't want to hear his name again. How often do you do these? <laughs> Pretty often. Like, uh, we put up three a week, so but sometimes we'll record. Okay. We can sometimes we'll, we record between up. four and eight a week, and there, you know, our schedule is pretty well mapped out for two or three months. Oh, that's my <laughs> special watch. Is that your? Is that the Google Watch? It's, this is the uh, the Apple Watch. I mean, yeah, what did I say? Apple, yeah, Apple you know, Watch. I'm a I, um, I, I'm a I'm a technology sheep. I how I do you like it? Every it? toy. Um, I really like it a lot. Actually, it's I was skeptical about it when I first heard because you know for years the tech industry has been trying to serve us yeah. a form of the Dick Tracy watch, and it's never <laughs> it's never worked. I mean, it, you but remember they, they haven't gotten us the stove with built-in TV yet. You know? <laughs> <laughs> remember those, the arrow pointing to it? You wanted <laughs> technology has really yeah. failed by putting putting a TV stove on the stove with built-in TV. He always had that. Like, <laughs> he wanted to when it happens. Chester Gold. I said it for. Yeah, he was always. Wanted to claim those things, the two-way wrist TV, but it didn't. Uh, yeah. it, and I remember, if you remember in the '80s, they did the uh, 
I believe I think Sony made like a TV watch. There was like a, when they were when there were there was the Watchman oh. after the Walkman boom. Then they, they created. Well, the, yeah, I had a Sony Watchman, the crazy black and white thing. That I still have big. it. Yeah, I still have one in my I don't garage. Know if I have mine somewhere. Yeah, you have the antenna that you huge yeah. antenna, and and then they made a they made a watch version for a while, and then uh, no one bought it. And it, I, I just feel like for the longest time, I felt like some type of communication watch has been. <laughs> As elusive as making 3D a viable thing that they keep yeah. trying to sell us, but I gotta say I've, I've had it for a couple of days and it's already been tremendously useful. Oh, I'm gonna have to get one. It's it's pretty great. I mean, it's got all the apps on it, and it's just like you can. It's actually more convenient than using the phone, and it's less distracting looking down at your phone. And it's it's oh yeah, it's uh, but it, but of course it's another device to carry around everywhere my my bag of cords is yeah <laughs> well, how do you charge it you just it's the, plug there, it there's basically i don't think it's quite it, it kind of, oh. i think it looks like an inductive i think there's an inductive surface in the back and it's like oh, a okay. magnet and it sticks and then it and then it basically just charges um but it's uh it's kind of funny now that we're so addicted to technological advancement that it's oh you brought that thank you michelle Hey, how's it going? Oh, were we actually doing the podcast just now? Well, we were just yeah. chatting and we're That's recording, good. so it's, yeah. Hello! Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? Good. Welcome. Do you want some water or something? Um, Do you guys want oh, some? No. You can have one of these. There Would you go. like a water? Sure. There you go. Thank you. Scout, if you're cool with that, just stay there and don't move. This dog never moves. <laughs> but I think it's just funny, it's just funny how, you know, when uh, we grew up around the same time. I'm older, but... But but not by much. But like I'm was born in '62. But yeah, like the, um, yeah, I've seen a lot of yeah, a lot of shit has happened. <laughs> Do you remember that? Remember like the like the when the Sears catalog when you'd get the Sears catalog in the '70s, which was yeah. you know at the time like oh this has a lot of the great the the hippest technology. I mean it's oh yeah, Sears catalogs were incredible. I, when I started playing bass, I had this epiphany like it sort of in the middle of the night that like I was gonna. I was going to buy a bass and learn to play bass, electric bass. And I went and got the Sears catalog. It was like in the middle of the night, I don't know, like one in the morning. And it was like, they had a, you could buy a bass in the Sears catalog. I just, I ended up buying one at a pawn shop, but, but yeah, Sears catalog had everything. Sears catalog was like, basically the internet. I mean, yeah, it was basically yeah. like Amazon. Like it was, there was every type yeah. of, every type of thing you needed. And I'm sure at the time people, when people first started getting Sears catalogs, it probably felt like, what the internet feel like? Wow, you could just get anything. Another way it was like the internet is, was, uh, you know, if you're a 12 year old boy, there were pictures of girls in bras. <laughs> so that was, uh, it even had that really, really great 70s health bras, which are basically just like, just like uh, impenetrable cones. These kids don't realize how good they have it to do. <laughs> I know. I was like, I tried to explain to someone like. Yeah, I still get kind of turned on if there's like <laughs> snow on the TV because it reminds me of trying to watch scrambled porn and people are like, oh my what god, are you talking was, yeah. about? <laughs> like, well, there was a time when you and then you know, oh, yeah, that was. A <laughs> oh my god, yeah, that was. I remember that scrambled porn was just. It was so busy. Yeah, it'd be like on some UHF channel, like fifty-seven or something, and you'd just be praying for some signal to come through and Not, nothing. Yeah, for you know, you might get a picture for a half a second. Be like, okay, there, there. 
There was a shoulder. I think that was a shoulder. It was either a butt or a shoulder. I don't know. But I'm just going to let my imagination do the rest of the work. Yeah. It was just like, it was, it was basically, it was basically a, a, a relay race between what you could see and your, 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 imagina- your hormonal imagination yeah. taking over and being like, oh, they must be. Oh, my God. Yeah, you would just, you, yeah, you, your brain would put it together. It would come in, like, there'd be the type where there'd be like flashes of it in black and white and then half sometimes half a screen here and the other half over here so you'd have to put them together if you were lucky (laughs) if you were lucky yeah (laughs) if you were absolutely lucky millennials have no idea what we're talking about right now Now, this is basically just like we might as well be elderly people like in the old days you had to make a woodcut of a vagina and then it took you a month and a half to jerk off once (laughs) (laughs) masturbation was difficult we had there was also the um, my parents had the Horizon Time Life book series, which was about, I guess, history of art. But th- there was the Renaissance paintings. That had, <laughs> like, I remember telling the kid across the street, I got a book at my house that has, like, because there was a painting, this one of those massive paintings that had, like, you know, 50 naked women in it. Yeah. So I have... I have a book that has 50 naked women. What? I'll bet you. <laughs> it's like, yeah. that is the serious catalog of porn. It's, uh, but, it, but then, you know, you were the right age to essentially get, I mean, it's, I'm, I know you've talked about this a million and a half times, probably more than you care to, but getting swept up in actual Silicon Valley and then going and working in, in the tech sector for a while. Oh, we, yeah. And, but but also being a dude, and there's a there's a lot. I mean, this is very common now, being someone who had artistic pursuits as well as because you majored in physics, right? Yeah. And then you went in, and then you went to work for a graphics card company. Uh, yeah, that was a, my yeah my second job was a company that made yeah the early early GPUs. <laughs> what, what, yeah, type, what types of graphics could that that card? Well, it was on? actually so this was eighty seven when I had that job. Oh, okay, that was actually like I mean it was. A legit well, it was for what is it, ten eighty by sixteen something screens, which nobody they, they were used for very not back then. Uh, they, yeah. e- each one of these graphics cards that this company that I worked at made, that I remember they were about the price of a Hyundai. They could, like whatever that was, like five thousand dollars they would sell for. So they were they were selling them to like the government was using uh, some kind of like fingerprint technology with these high resolution screens, and uh, but it was yeah, it wasn't. Uh, it was a very it was a small company and they made them for you know very specific clients it wasn't like it was uh it was early on but yeah no i i did yeah my degree was in physics i always did electronic stuff um had a ham radio license when i was in uh, i was i was a nerd when there was absolutely nothing cool about it you basically I missed it I, you be- <laughs> i should i'm trying i'm now i go around talking about how i used to be a nerd but yeah, well, that's that's the big that's a big thing now is is that uh, people all the time say to me like, "Oh, you're not really a nerd." And I'm like, "No, no, you don't understand." And there there was this, there was this era of like proto nerds when you really like you had basically because there was no internet, so you basically had whatever three or four people at your school happened to be into that stuff. Yeah, a comic book shop. Maybe, <laughs> and Radio Shack. Like those, the, oh, Radio Shack was yeah. I was that was a I regular. Mean, ra- Radio Shack was basically your uh, like your uh, Home Depot if you could. Yeah, and or if you were like the really snobby the ham radio operators when I was a kid, 
the really snobby ones were like just refused to go to Radio Shack. They'd go to <laughs> in Albuquerque. There was a place. It was uh, they called it EP. It was Electronic Parts. But uh, so like, yeah, I'm going to EP. And uh, but um, but yeah, I mean, it was it was also like I don't know. If, I mean, I'm 52. When I was in high school, I took Fortran programming, and you'd go down to the computer center at UNM and you'd, you'd do it on cards. You'd program on, on uh, you type it out and go on these cards. It was crazy. It was crazy. Let me tell you. It was wild. <laughs> Back in those days, we were on cards, like actual <laughs> yeah, we cards. Were. It was insane. <laughs> but, but, but I don't did think... Did you it, do computer stuff? Like, did you, yeah, I mean, my, my, uh, my first machine was a, <laughs> was a fairly useless machine. It was, a, it was the a TRS-80, which was basically that... Oh. That, it was like this all-inclusive term. It was like one of the terminals. Yeah, what year would that have been? Like, 81 or 82, yeah, maybe? Yeah, I yeah. remember those things. And, uh, and, and there wasn't really... Uh, and it, it was a fairly unreliable machine. It, it turned on about half the time I could actually get the, I could actually get the screen uh-huh. to come on. And then... Um, was that through the school or through no, a... No, my, um, my parents bought it for me because they knew... I mean, my, my parents very much subsidized my technology addiction and so uh, after the TRS-80 debacle <laughs> Radio Shack came out with the TRS-80 Color Computer 2 which was which was a much more uh, I'll say robust machine that actually used <laughs> the television as a monitor and it was, it was oh yeah the, I remember that yeah the terminal was basically built into the it was actually built into the, the, the all the logic stuff was built into the keyboard and so you would you know Just run a in. wire into the back yeah. you know and are you oh man? I don't sound like old people, but just like having to go around to the back of your TV and like scoot yeah. it out and unscrew and put in the little U hook in the yeah, little screw, coaxial yeah, little co- cable, like coax cables and the little yeah. the, the, the antenna hooks and the uh, oh yeah, actually hook into the antenna hook, part hook of it. Yeah, right. And you could, there, there That's was, even yeah. There was the adapter. There was like a coax to you to to like to UHF adapter where you could like right because it it, it didn't have a direct NT, <laughs> it didn't have your NTSC video which is. It, it had the you'd go direct into the to the to the RF. It's called. Uh, it was you. You basically it, you. Yeah. This, like that 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 slice of nerd culture was not. It, nothing was like hand delivered. Like you 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 had to. Oh not, yeah. not only did you had to go out of your you had to go out of your way to not only consume it, but a lot of times you had to make the stuff that you then would consume because they're just yeah. It just wasn't that much stuff yet. Yeah, there was the. Mine was well. This was in college. I, I didn't own my own ever, but the it's the Heathkit M six eight hundred. But that was like just a that was like machine code programming for specific things. But yeah, I mean nobody. I was looking that up the other day, and I, you know they sell them on eBay and stuff. A, a lot of that old. I mean, I'm sure one. I don't know. One of those Radio Shack things is probably worth something now, don't you think? Probably a little bit. I mean, I don't know yeah. if it's worth. I mean, I, I think. Uh, yeah, actually, I don't know what it. You know, every once in a while you. If I've, I've been to conventions before that'll have, um, you know, like a, a little area of, you know, a museum of old, of old yeah. machines <laughs> or a museum of old game consoles or a museum of old, of old computer terminals. And uh, it's, I, I always, aesthetically, I always liked the Altair 8800 because it just looked, it looked really cool and analog. And, uh, oh, I think we had, we did a photo shoot for Hollywood Reporter. It was Alec Berg, myself, and Thomas Middleditch, and, and they had a bunch of those old things. Yeah, they, I don't know where they got them. I, I guess there's you know prop houses or whatever, but it was kind of cool seeing they had that one. It's kind of cool seeing those again. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, 
when you started working in the when you started working in the tech sector, did you you I'm sure did you at that time go oh well this is this is going to be my future because obviously you know computers are a technology is a growing industry now here as part of the 80s economy and this is just something that's <laughs> of interest to me. Yeah, I mean I kind of went along with the plan that everybody you know guidance counselors and everyone they were saying you know science is yeah, my mom was really big on science like just you know that thomas dolby song where there's that voice that just goes science remind me of science just, yes yeah yeah that, uh, that 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 voice just reminds me of just i don't know my childhood it's science it's gonna be <laughs> uh but yeah i went um yeah so i i, mean, I always thought of it as like oh i find this stuff mildly interesting i'm sort of good at it i'll at least i'll have a good job and then i'll f- figure out what i want to do and the thing i realized pretty quickly doing it though is because i've worked every shitty job you could imagine and if you're washing dishes or something at least you can daydream about other stuff but the thing about engineering is it occupies your entire brain (laughs) and so then you're not you know you you get home and it kind of then it starts to take your soul with it a little bit which Mm -hmm. and i actually liked some of it i mean but yeah that was my my plan was i I just but but i guess to answer your question i that was the plan but then i pretty quickly thought like oh man am i just gonna be doing this till i retire and i'm 60 or something like that and do i really want to do that maybe it'll be all right i don't know and then i just decided i didn't want to do it anymore but um nothing against people who do it i think uh if i had had jobs that i liked more maybe i would have stayed with it i don't know so what was it about animation that because i i mean my earliest uh my earliest exposure to you was that my roommate at the time, Will Wheaton, and I would went to the Spike and Mike Festival of Animation at there was a Lemley Theater in Santa Monica. I don't know if it's still there. Oh yeah, he and used to play. What, was it on Wilshire or something? Yeah, it was on. Uh, it was Montana it, or yeah, it was on. No, it was on. Um, it was on like Fourth Street. It was like it was. Oh it was, right, right, yeah. There was a Lemley there, and so we went. You know, I one, one night after class, we went and, and watched and. You know, saw uh, frog baseball and okay. um, and the the one that had uh, Straculius, the Roman god of feces. Um, <laughs> you remember that? Yeah, I remember that. And that I rem- was uh, <laughs> that no, was an early not, BBC not my Bud best moment. But <laughs> <laughs> we loved it, though. We absolutely loved it. And then Actually, I, yeah, they showed the Milton shorts, and so it was. Uh, there was a, there was a, there was very much in nine. I mean, you you started at the exact right time because. Yeah, ninety two was right around the time when, you know, John Kay and yeah, and there was this whole uh, and Liquid Television, this whole renaissance of animation. Animation had really taken a nosedive between the sixties and the eighties, and there yeah. was, there seemed to be a, I mean, in terms of quality, yeah, and, that, and there seemed to be a return to like let's empower the artists, and and there was something about the the Sick and Twisted Festival that was very much in the spirit of. Like YouTube now of like oh, oh totally you know, yeah make it yourself and then we'll showcase it for you yeah it was a, it was completely like this grassroots movement that was kind of happening out of I think I was actually I just saw John Chris Felusi yesterday actually and like I think you know people our age we saw you know when I was a kid I saw the great old animation the you know Chuck Jones mm-hmm. Tex Avery all that Warner Brothers stuff was just incredible and then you just saw it gets so bad for so long and uh yeah around the time that was a really great time it was it was 
kind of surreal. I mean, I didn't know. I was just working by myself in my house outside of Dallas and mailing these things off. I hadn't even seen them play in front of an audience. <laughs> and I was hearing about it. The Spike and Mike people were telling me, oh, it got over huge. And, and then at one point, so I'd still like, I'd, I think I'd made four of them and I was just mailing them out. One of a couple had played on Comedy Central and I was getting my stuff out there. And then they flew me out to San Diego, which was, and this, the Sick and Twisted Fest was huge then. I mean, like they had Klieg lights going mm-hmm. and it was selling out, like lined up around the block. They'd have two shows and, and it was so weird to go from just making these things one frame at a time by myself to seeing like Klieg lights and people just going, <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, that that festival. I mean, to this day, I get people saying, you know, I saw it, it reached a lot of people. I guess yeah. it was it played all over the country, and, and yeah, and that was that thing that you don't get anymore, where it was like you could only see it there, and there were cartoons like you would never see anywhere. Like people's minds were blown because, you know, if if you're well, if at any age, then you wouldn't have seen anything like that. There was stuff like the uh, the Mike Grimshaw. Oh, the Grimshaw start. stuff was so Quiet brutal. Was, that that kind of started. Was the it. Most, yeah. I mean, it's like he clear. I, I saw Mike, Mike Grim. If if you're listening to this and you haven't seen Quiet, please. I, it's still disturbing. It is one of the <laughs> most. <laughs> it's, but it just it's so deliberately wrong in such a funny way that it's just. I mean, yeah. The way what is it? Is, yeah, there's a little baby with a little rattle, and this guy baby just the rattle, like, shut the fuck and up. And he shoots it in the head. <laughs> he kicks it, then he shoots a priest, and then he, <laughs> she's like, he, uh, oh, yeah, it just, it's, and then it, it goes, goes downhill from it there. Goes, <laughs> then it goes downhill from there, yeah. Because when we went, we attended one of the screenings where he spoke. Oh, and, you were uh, there with, yeah. And, and I, I do know him. He ended up, I ended up, he worked on, he wrote some Beavis and Butthead episodes, and he's actually really <laughs> good. He, he's a, he was a plumber in Vancouver and a really good animator. Oh, yeah. But hey, well, go go ahead. What no, did I was going like? to say. I was going to say he spoke, and and people, you know, people were like, they were asking him questions like, "What the fuck is wrong with you?" And he was like, <laughs> "What?" Like he was it was really funny. To, but yeah. but it was you know it was it was the internet before the internet. But I also think there's um, I was thinking there's I was thinking about this today that when you have to go out of your way to to consume something like now, if there yeah. was a, if, you know, if you, if you just started now and you put, you know, Milton or Beavis and Butthead or, or, or inbred jet or whatever on YouTube, it's very possible that it, it could, it would still get a following, but people just, I think because content is so disposable now and people yeah. don't have to exert any effort to get it, but there was so much value in making the decision to leave our houses, go to the theater, experience something new and different that no one yeah. else could see anywhere, know that it was special, know that we were in on something that felt private but communal. Um, it had such tremendous value, and we would, you know, we went back as many times as we could to watch the same festival over and over again, and then, you know, every so often when it would come through town, there was so much value in the oh, fact yeah. that we had to be to actively consume it as opposed to what I think a lot of people do now is passively consume where they just don't necessarily, you know, it's like, Oh, I, you know, we're, we're spoiled now with convenience yeah. and, and entertainment. I know it's, I mean, I'm, I sit there on YouTube all day myself, but I do, <laughs> I do miss it. Like I used to go to every, there was, there was another festival besides that that uh, was called the animation celebration that we yeah. play in Dallas. And I would go every time. And it, also there was something pretty cool that you, Seeing that stuff on a big screen projected, like cell animation shot on film projected, is just an amazing. I just think it looks incredible or stop motion, and you don't you don't get that 
you know, on YouTube. But but still, it's the other problem with YouTube is that first Office Space Milton short I did, which I I did the lip sync bite with a stopwatch, which I, I may be the only person who's ever done this that I know of. Like timed every syllable on exposure sheets, where in it, and that's all talking that mm-hmm. whole thing. And so it 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 took it's pretty meticulous work. I got it, I nailed it. It all all was there. I was like, oh, this is amazing. I can't believe I got this to work. And now it's on YouTube for everyone to see out of sync. Like it's like oh. a second off. Oh. <laughs> it's like, oh, for all my grandchildren and great grandchildren, it's like all that work. <laughs> a few people saw it on, it was on SNL correctly. And so, and now it's on YouTube out of sync. Great. So was it, so, uh, it, was it the Spike and Mike festivals that sort of, um, was that, did that kind of launch everything? Did that connect you to well, MTV and, um, Actually, not it. It all kind of happened at once. Like Spike, Spike and Mike ran this one of the first ones I did before Beavis and Butthead, and then um, I actually sent them a storyboard for Frog Baseball, and they weren't interested. And then I did. Yeah, they had some other. Th- I did another one. I did two more, and then um, I just told them I'm going to make this anyway. Um, and then, and so then he. He said, "Okay, well then I'll you know I'll pay you to license it." But um, around that time, I was getting I, I was just get like Comedy Central was interested in doing the Milton stuff, and then I had uh, um, Liquid Television. There was a show called Liquid yeah, Television. Yeah, TV. Yeah. So they how are they finding it though? The, oh, I, I just mailed it to them. Oh, you there, just there sent was, it to yeah, you I, I was I was sending out VHS tapes. I was literally <laughs> I had I called Information and just you know mtv and i just called around and bugged people until someone would give me an address but actually liquid television had an ad in animation magazine saying send stuff um and uh so i just sent it to them uh, a tape of my my stuff so so yeah it was really just sending out tapes and i think i think you know probably people in entertainment would get tons of tapes of i don't know people doing whatever scripts but Mine actually had a, I had a crazy drawing of a character I called Inbred Jed on the side of the VHS. And I think yeah. it said homemade cartoons. I think I had a feeling that would get, they don't get a lot of homemade <laughs> cartoons. And I thought that would get attention and it did. I mean, I got like within my first like mailing out, like, I don't know, 15 tapes within like a couple of weeks, I was getting all these calls. So yeah, I kept thinking, why did I go to college <laughs> physics degree? I work as an engineer. I should have just done this when i was 17 and were you able to apply any of the things you learned in engineering to um some of the misery of working in cubicles i used for material <laughs> later <laughs> you know what, what's what's really what's really interesting to me about it, like <clears throat> everything you do kind of uh it puts a very specific subculture under a microscope whether it's an office environment or whether it's like a you know like a tgi fridays or 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 even you know sort of the dumbing down of America and kind of douche culture or you know or these little Hesher kids or rednecks you know I mean I still yeah. you know for 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 years Will and I would quote you know we would do the the inbred Jed you would start and he would be laughing in the thing and the oh, cackling wow, you saw that yeah. yeah and then like play some Skinner and then with the guy like spits at <laughs> his girlfriend like he spits and it just hits her on yeah. the it just kind of like catches her on the side he spits the chew out I mean it's like we we quoted that stuff for ages but there's there's something you're able to find you're able to zero in on some really 
amazingly authentic piece of the subculture. <laughs> and, you know, maybe, maybe engineering or maybe like maybe understanding code or figuring out. I mean, it's almost like you're almost like coding culture <laughs> in a weird sort of that way. That could be. I never thought of it that way. But, yeah, maybe. I mean, uh, yeah, I guess, I guess that's just the stuff I'm drawn to. I, I don't. Um, yeah, I've and I, I also my other career was I was a musician and toured all over the country and I think you you sort of when you're playing in a lot of different towns you start to see how much how there's these there are these kind of archetypes and that there's it's, it's like oh it's that guy in the bar who's like that or it's that you know like there's there's a lot of uh, things are kind of the same everywhere. <laughs> it's kind of funny in a lot that, of ways. It's, it's kind the, of funny that, that there are consistencies. Yeah. From seemingly unrelated regions. Right, yeah. And, and I, I think even, like, King of the Hills set in Texas, but I think, you know, you can be in Michigan and there's guys standing around staring at a truck engine drinking <laughs> beer and, you know, it's <laughs> anywhere where there are white people and engines and lawnmowers. <laughs> we just like to stay yeah, near them yeah. as a, to celebrate the fact that we've mastered the machine. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> But I would imagine when um, so Beavis and Butthead, I assume, spun out of Liquid Television. Did that was, did Liquid Television start the conversation for this for the series? Yeah, they. they or I'm um, sure MTV was like, "Here's five dollars." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, it went from it went through different levels of people trying to rip me off. It, went, it started with <laughs> Liquid Television, who I guess they I kind of found this out later. They had the right to. To, they had the first right to negotiate with any of the things that they had licensed, I guess. So it, I was getting all these weird cryptic calls from liquid television people. There was this guy, with a, he was this British guy who was very kind of kind of insulting to me. Like he, he was saying, like, he'd say, you know, um, MTV wants to buy these characters, believe it or not. <laughs> so, <laughs> and he was... <laughs> what? Oh, he was was that last part shit. necessary, sir? Yeah, you're like... Insulted me, and then he kind of like, and then tried to rip me off. He sent me this contract that was just, and I said, okay, I'm interested in doing something with MTV for sure. And he sends me this contract, and I just, I called him. I said, well, I, obviously, I can't sign this. This is like, they, they would own everything for the right. They would own everything, and they would pay me like, uh, something like four thousand dollars to do two more two-minute shorts, which they would, at, at the time, doing everything myself, doing a two-minute short would take me, like, eight weeks. So that was, like, a lot of work for $2,000 each. Right. And that, anyway, so I just said, I can't do this. And then he was like, well, I thought we had an agreement. <laughs> and this, and then, so I finally, <laughs> I blew them off. And then what happened, then they, that guy... So they then it was just over and then but what MTV was doing I guess they if they waited a certain amount of time then they could call me directly so they that so then they started calling me directly and then there was that level of horrible contrast <laughs> <laughs> well I guess you know you've, <laughs> I did, you've but, experienced that I did but you know I, I only experienced it as a host I didn't create any IP that like that changed our culture so it, well it's you know I feel, yeah, like you, no. I feel like you probably got a way shorter end of the deal than I like I, I don't yeah know. I did I mean that what happened though was they, they had they had this um I mean I guess the next thing they they I didn't know they even wanted to do a show. They were always very cryptic. I thought they were just going to do those animated IDs, and and I'd already done a um, little bumper for the VMAs. You know, the 
Video Music Awards. Um, but they, yeah, so I did a deal with them where they bought the characters for uh, not a whole lot of money. But, uh, <laughs> but also I knew I wasn't going to, what was I going to do by myself? I was, like I said, it'd take me eight minutes to do a couple of these. And I thought, oh, maybe I'll do one more and then. That's it. I don't have that many ideas for Beavis and Butthead. <laughs> That's what I thought. <laughs> but then, then uh, so then they bought it, and then they said we're going to make a show. But then they needed me to do the show. It was all very weird and. That's why the show was really spotty the first season. Like I, I didn't, they didn't know what they were doing. I didn't realize that I was in charge right away. I, it, it was all very odd. But um, they, their lawyer had all the, uh, she had all the the bad intentions of a good lawyer but she wasn't very good at she had left some big holes in the contract and there was like so later on i was able to re- renegotiate and i remember at one point um i found out that i was making more money than tabitha soren so <laughs> <laughs> i said okay that's fair that was a big, <laughs> oh my god yeah. yeah because you had no you know mtv was such this strange um this this weird wasteland of like well i don't know there's not really any rules because this was you know, like the, the, yeah. the that 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 type of cable model was still fairly new, and so it didn't really. Yeah, and they had, at that point they had really they had just about never done a, an actual show. They'd definitely not done an animated show. So it was, you know, like they just said, "Okay, do thirty-five episodes, and um, here's some promo writers to help you out." And some of them were actually really good, um, but yeah, it was uh, no one knew what they were doing. They hired an a guy who had to do the animation. They didn't even have an animation company. They hired this guy who had only done commercials and he just, he didn't know what he was doing. And it it took a while. I, the first season, if it was an episode that I liked, I would first couple seasons, I would spend a lot of time on those. And then the ones I didn't like, I'd go, that's going to suck anyway. I'll just (laughs) let that one go. And there's some really good ones and really bad ones. I feel like, but yeah, it was, they, Eventually, it sorted itself out, but um, yeah, that was a weird place. When, when did Singled Out happen? Was that 95 to yeah. 98? So they it was were just, starting it was to, just like right people after. People were starting to not watch videos already. To, I mean, by the time Beavis and Butthead came along, like VH1's ratings apparently were lower than the preview guide. Oh, yeah, that's why <laughs> like, they started, that's why those channels started programming. People were like, you guys don't show music videos anymore. And, like, and the answer not was, watching well, them. yes, you're not watching them. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but they're, like, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're a, a capitalist organization. If you watch something, they will make more of yeah, that it's thing. Like if a, you don't watch, they will make less of that It's more thing. of a democracy than democracy. <laughs> and, yeah, and, and, but I think the other, isn't, I don't, maybe, you know, like, apparently the Nielsen's, you would have to, I guess people were watching music videos, but they were flipping back and forth. So, like, you have to be parked on it for a whole 15 minutes, I guess, to register. Oh, is that what the... I, I, I remember hearing that. I don't know if that's true anymore, but... But, um, yeah, then... And I, I don't even know what they are now, but... Did you feel... I mean, when you said, well, I don't know what... I don't know how far I can go with these guys. Did you... Uh, how, how... What was it that, when you started the process, that made you find who they were and how far you could go with them and what their, what their personalities were going to end up being. I think, um, I started to, I've, you know, at that point I'd never, I'd done four or five animated shorts. I'd never done a show. I'd never tried to write a show or anything like that. So I think I didn't realize really that, um, I guess where it's, where I started to get a second wind was, was talking over the videos and, especially the voice of Beavis, like all, all he had done in the first two shorts that I'd 
he just kind of grunted and said, I just imagined him as this fry brain guy who just kind of is like, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and I, I didn't, and then I started to just kind of, and being forced to just come up with stuff for these videos, I started, it's, it was like I was doing this weird puppet show or something. I started, I don't know, I just started to kind of develop a personality for Beavis. And then it, I don't know, it just started to, started to take shape. And I've had that happen a couple, like the, th- after the second, I think it was like the third season, I was just thinking, I can't do this anymore. I, this is, we'd done however many, 75 episodes. And I, and and then I got another second wind and came up with this Cornholio thing and all that stuff. <laughs> and, 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 uh, so I, but I, it's just, I realized you, you, you just can't look at it like, like, yeah, yeah that one was, that was... That was a, a weird one. Where did that second <laughs> wind? Where did that? Where did the Cornholio wind come from? That was, um, <laughs> I don't. You know, it was. I, I just had this vision, kind of in the middle of the night, that Beavis should just pull his shirt over his head and just go crazy. I, I kept thinking at some point I should have Beavis really completely go crazy because I was starting to kind of hint at it. And then um, I was actually out here in L.A. during the earthquake in '94. And I remember that night I was with a couple of people. We were at the Ace Awards, and a friend of mine, for some reason, we just started saying the word mustache in an accent. I don't know what we were talking. We were being really silly and saying mustachio and mustachio. It, it, it's not funny at all. It was at the time. But <laughs> but uh, then the the uh, then I went back to LA. I don't know. The earthquake might have knocked something loose in my brain or something. But I <laughs> came back to New York, and we were recording an episode where they were uh, – the hippie teacher was talking about corn and it's Indians call it maize. And there was some line that I didn't like. And I, and I just decided to have Beavis pull up, pull a shirt over his head and just say, I just, it just came out of my mouth while I was recording. I'm Cornholio. And, and then, so that was before the Cornholio episode. And then we just, we had, we were one script short. We used to do them in groups of five. And that one, uh, Chris Brown, who worked with me at the time, I just said, hey, I'm, let's try to do that. I'll just go in and record an episode without a script, just go make it up as I go along. And he kind of helped me with it. He he kind of wrote that intro, I think. And then the rest of it, I I just kind of winged it. So it was, I was just going to try that just for the hell of it, see if I could do a, a an episode that was just completely kind of improv <laughs> in the booth. <laughs> so that was that's how that came about. I just kind of made it up. And I was doing the voices of all the teachers and the principals, so I, I just went through and just did it so i mean it's amazing that if you even if you don't know where you're going to end up if you have if you at least have some faith in the process of like well when i get there maybe the right thing will come out i mean like you don't yeah you couldn't have planned that and it and it just you know you don't and you don't know at the time i mean like when you're in there saying i'm cornholio you don't (laughs) it's not occurring to you like this is going to be on t-shirts for 20 years. Like, you, you know, yeah, you're, I didn't, not, you're like, Oh my God, this is, what am I, this is so silly. Yeah. I remember I was, uh, I was a little embarrassed even, to, but at this point the, the show was a hit and I thought, uh, who cares? I'm just going to do something really weird. And I, and I, uh, and actually Beavis and Butthead was the fourth short I did. And I remember that my thought then was, I'm just, okay, I've done three of these. I got them in festivals and on TV. I'm just going to do a really weird one just for fun. And that was Beavis and Butthead. And so the Cornholio episode was like that. I just, and our our layout supervisor, Diane Sparagano, I I remember I, I went to her that I I think they'd seen the, there was, there was no script. And so, uh, she, I don't know if she 
she was asking me, she needed a title, and she'd go, what's the title of this one that you guys, you know, that you made up in the booth? And I said, uh, and I just said, it's called The Great Cornholio. And <laughs> she started laughing. And, uh, and then everybody, you know, all the, we would sit with the artists, we would listen to the track and have a storyboard meeting, and, and they were all just laughing really hard, and I, and I was describing what he would be doing. And, and uh, so I, I thought maybe we were on to something at that point. But, but yeah, I mean, I... I, from the beginning, like if you think of it as, you know, when they said, okay, we're going to do 65 episodes, that's just completely daunting. But I think what happens, I've heard stand-up comedians say this a lot of times when you're on the microphone in front of people, things can come to you that just because of the yeah. urgency of it. And, yeah. and and I think that that happens to me when I would get in the booth and record. like. It's a similar thing, I guess, from the way I've heard comedians describe it. Whereas if I was going to sit there and just go, okay, think up this many episodes or this many comments over videos, I, it, it helps me to just get in there and just do it. Um, so I think, and also just to, it's like the, the alcoholics mentality of, you know, one day at a time. Like, yeah. like I just go, okay, I'm, I'm not going to think of 65 episodes. I'm just going to figure out this episode and then worry about the next one later. And yeah, I mean that's literally all so, you can do anyway. Yeah, yeah. It's, but I it it, uh, it it took me a little while to to realize that and not you know stress out and have anxiety attacks. Well, that filter that that process that you're talking about. If I think the I think the writing comes from I don't know if it's that it comes from a different place where you sit down to write <clears> versus <throat> you go on stage or you go in a booth and you just start churning out stuff. But, you know, when you sit down to write, there's a filtering process because your brain is trying to sort through, oh, well, this, no, that's dumb. But when you're, when they're, like, they turn the line and they go, okay, go. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You don't really have time to, it just, like, whatever nuggets just come out and you don't, there's no fear anymore. There's no censoring. And I think that's, that's, that's where the ore is, you know? Yeah. I feel like that. Well, especially for Beavis and Butthead, for me, that was, that was the case. Then when, uh, did were you surprised because everything that you've done it's like oh well you know i just decided to go work in uh in computers and then you know you had a career doing that you worked as you worked in you know you majored in physics you toured the country playing bass you know like you everything that it seems like oh i just decided to dabble in like you've really managed to to yeah, I guess really I'd... really well see through yeah i mean i mean I, they, I guess they, in a way though, they were sort of like music. Something I've always done. You know, I don't know since like fifth grade. I've always played music. A lot of people in my family do. So that was that was something like I was doing. I was playing gigs when I was in college and while I was working engineering. So I didn't, you know. But yeah, when I started, and then I guess engineering is kind of the same way. Animation was the one thing that I just kind of I'd always wanted to try and i used to do flip book stuff when i was a kid but i i did that was one thing i did just pick up late in life kind of out of the blue i mean not out of the blue but i had never had any training or never you know but what's your figure it out process right because everything that you've done is not super easy to just pick up so obviously you in the same way that i think that you were able to comedically uh dissect a subculture you you seem to be able to break down oh well if i just do this and this and this like there, there's something about your brain that's able to dissect a process and figure it out yeah i think uh, i think people in my 
family have a, there's, you know, other science people and engineers just have this thing about wanting to figure out how everything works. And, uh, my dad's that way. My, my uncle, um, and actually I remember my, my, uh, uncle Ned, when I was a kid, I was just him explaining how animation works and, and, uh, that when he was a kid, he had a super eight camera and he used to make stop motion stuff. And, and, uh, I just, I don't know why it took me so long to try it. <laughs> I waited, <laughs> waited till I was like, I think I was 26 when I even started animating. Um, but, uh, and that was just going, I went to the library and got books on it. I, I, uh, the same festivals you're talking about. Well, the animation celebration played at the Inwood Theater in Dallas, and there was a guy named Paul Clairhout who was a local guy who had gotten a film in there. So it was films from all around the world. And I just thought, wow, there's a guy in my town who did this. I bet I could do it. And uh, just went and got books on it, figured out that I could... I bought a Bolex movie camera for 200 bucks and just started, just started doing it. Did it, did you ever was it weird when you started to get to the point because now you're also a very famous voiceover actor <laughs> which is just part you know I, well that's another thing but I mean that's something that since I mean in in a way like I'd always wanted to do sketch comedy I did imitations and I actually think I peaked in high school my senior year of high school <laughs> I did pretty good imitations of the teachers and and it and it uh, and then in, in college, too, I just never was around anybody else to... I mean, I had a friend in high school, that, uh, this guy, Tony Darling. He was... And he had gone, which to me is one of the bravest things. In Albuquerque, this was way before the stand-up comedy thing had caught on and was in strip malls. Like, nobody did it other than L.A. and New York. And he went on at his talent show in Albuquerque High and, and then got booked into some clubs. And he did it, like, three or four times and then bombed once and never did it again. Oh, wow. And, and But... But we used to talk about doing stuff together, but, um, you know, I moved and then, and then there was like, it just, there was never, it, it's, I didn't know how to put it together. Cause I, I'm just, I, I needed other people and, you know, I'm not good at convincing anybody to do anything. So <laughs> when I, animation, when I, for, I'd always wanted to try it, but for some reason, those two things came together. I thought like, maybe this is a way to get into sketch comedy. Cause I could be like the Terry Gilliam of a sketch show. I'll be right. the, you know, animate these shorts and that maybe that can get me into writing and doing characters and stuff. So, so that was, that was really what I was looking to do. And I, I, uh, actually got, I sent it, I sent a, a tape of one of my first tapes to the kids in the hall and they actually called me. And, oh shit. Uh, yeah. This blew my mind. My phone rings in Dallas and it's, it, it was Scott Thompson and I think Bruce McCullough. And, um, yeah, so I, it was, uh, that, that was, so it was kind of like, you know, the voiceover thing was, I, I, I knew I was better at that than I am at drawing. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I thought I could, I thought I could do some, put together some funny characters. What did you, did, did anything pan out with kid with the kids in the hall? Uh, actually, they sort of ripped it off a little bit. Uh-oh. They had a, Uh-oh. they had a guy, they had a character Bruce McCullough played was just short sleeves and a tie. And he's like, where's my pen? Oh, and my pen, like, my pen. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I mean, it's not a, it's. I was, you know, I'm also kind of flattered, but, um, but, uh, yeah, no, they just were calling to say they liked it. And, uh, I was, I was just on the phone, like trying to keep them on the phone and go, <laughs> so can I, can I send other stuff to you guys? And he's, oh yeah, send it to our producer. And they gave me an address and, but, uh, 
but then by that point I was starting to get a lot of uh starting to get calls from, you know, MTV and some other other places. Was it a uh, was it a relief to go work on King of the Hill after being because I would imagine MTV is very guerrilla style and it's under you know it's like you're trying to do everything yourself and then to go and have the infrastructure of a te- of an, an actual net like a like a real yeah. network it was I mean they definitely it was a relief to not I mean but at that point Beavis and Butthead was had gotten to where it was running fairly well never as well as King of the Hill was run but it was it was like you know, we had a staff of, I don't know, 40 layout, you know, animators, layout artists. We were, it was, it was going pretty well at that point. But yeah, King of the Hill was, you know, Fox had been doing the Simpsons for a few years and they just knew how to do it. They, they had a, you know, they, it was film Roman and it was done right. It's like model sheets, just the way you're supposed to do an animated show. Not, not the way it was thrown together on (laughs) MTV, but uh, yeah, I mean that on one hand, yeah, that was that was a relief, but it was also a little bit more network interference kind of stuff. A little more, it was a little more of the development process, which I didn't like so much, but, uh, but the good Greg Daniels, who I partnered with it on, he had just been on the Simpsons. So he was very good at keeping the network at bay and kind of, cause the Simpsons was a really powerful show. They, you know, they didn't Jim Brooks kind of kept the network off their back. So, so Greg was kind of used to that, but it was still a lot more network interference than I was used to. I mean, it's funny that you say like, oh, you know, draw, you, you made some reference to your drawing not being your strong suit or something. But but I, but but what's so interesting about that is that just because it's not done in a what you know like in a Chuck Jones where everything is yeah constructed around a skeleton, you know, it's like, but you actually, it's a style like you have a very specific style that was different than anything else that it was. And, and it was the soul of like DIY. It's obvious this yeah. guy's doing it himself and that makes it special. I mean, I do, I, I do like what I draw. I'm not like, I don't mean to put it down in what, like I, I actually, in fact, I was so picky about the way Beavis and Butthead looked. I, I, by the time I got the show, like the Beavis and Butthead movie is how I wanted them to look. And, and, uh, or, or some of the episodes like from, you know, some in the first, anyway, it, but like, I, I actually made everybody trace or Xerox their heads. I drew, I drew their heads in every position in their mouths and everything so that it, it has to be, look like this. I did a walk cycle. This is how they need to walk. And, um, but yeah, I mean, I, when I was in college or I actually started in high school, I would get National Lampoon magazine and just thought it was the funniest thing ever. And I, and they, there was cartoons in there that were, that's the first time I'd seen stuff that drawn in kind of a weird loose style and it had so much character than something that just comes out of an animation factory. And, right. And you'd see stuff like, um, Mary Kay Brown, um, Buddy Hickerson, all these like great Mark Merrick, I think was his name. There's a, uh, uh, Mimi Pond, uh, all these great, um, Linda Berry, uh, like these really cool, kind of crudely looked, looked, looked like a teenager drew them in their notebook, you know? Right. And I just thought, like, why can't that stuff be animated? That's what I, All the stuff in Nat, National Lampoon that I just loved, like... And then Drew Friedman and Bill Griffith, all these great... So many great cartoonists. And I just thought, why can't someone animate this? Something that's that that interesting, that well-written, that, that that looks that cool. And so that's what I was trying to do, is to get... To capture that kind of spirit in animation... And it, it was starting to happen already. Like, I mean, I mean, I think Ren Stimpy is like the greatest 
animation of my time, but but I also like stuff like uh, at at the same time The Simpsons was in the Tracy Ullman show. Um, Mary Kay Brown, she goes by M K Brown, had something called Doctor Nagatu, which is just about impossible to Google because she spelled it with an exclamation point in the middle <laughs> of it. But I really loved that those shorts too because they were just kind of they were drawn in in her style, which I kind of was when I did the Milton cartoon. I was kind of thinking of Doctor Nagatu, but they were. It was color pencils and and it was just people talking at a table and it was just really funny dry stuff and and uh, so so yeah that's I mean that's how it I was trying to do that kind of stuff and so I, I do like the way you know I say I can't draw like I can't draw mountains and buildings and stuff like I I, I like the way I draw faces but uh, I, I'm not. Like if someone goes, hey, here, draw me. I'm, I'm not, you know, I didn't, <laughs> you're not, I, I'm not, you're not it, a takes me, it takes me a while. Yeah. I, <laughs> and sometimes I have to, I have to be in the, I, I don't draw that much anymore, but it's, it's sometimes the mood strikes me and I, I can draw faces, but I can't, you know, I'm not good at like, hey, draw a horse. Did it freak you out to be all of a sudden someone that people would run up to on the street and be like, do Hank Hill. Do Beavis and Butthead. Do, 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 do. You know, like basically start treating you like a puppet in, in real life. Uh, yeah, that would happen sometimes. No one knows what I look like, and so I, I really don't get recognized that often. Um, but yeah, there was, a, there was a while where I was in a – actually was in the office on Beavis and Butthead, and I was just walking down the hall in the middle of a crazy day, and the UPS guy is just like standing in front of me, and, and like he just goes, do it. <laughs> like do what i don't know what he's talking about <laughs> oh the laugh and i was like <laughs> okay and then he starts laughing and i just walk on <laughs> yeah i've had some some weird moments but yeah, i don't get recognized that much did you uh did you did you feel that was it was it a daunting task or was it easier to start doing live action from animation was it freeing he's like oh i don't have to time everything on a sheet before i can actually just- yeah it's yeah there's definitely actually one of the things that really jumped out at me that is cuz especially when you're when you're working with a, on a show with in animation when i was doing it all myself was one thing when it was a when they were shows and there's all these other people drawing it a lot of what I'd be doing, it's like, you know, whack-a-mole. It's like get rid of someone just put some stupid smiley face on on Butthead or, you know, like or some Hanna-Barbera face on Hank Hill and, go, you know, just saying, okay, don't do that, don't do that. Like you'd, you'd have a really good storyboard animatic and then there's always somebody who could screw it up somewhere. And the thing, like one of the first, when I started shooting Office Space, I was like, oh, that was great. And now no one's going to go... Draw a ridiculous smile on Lumberg or <laughs> Stephen Root's face. We, you know, like, like we have that. That's that's in the can. That's no one can screw it up now. And that's, you know. Yeah, but you're also relinquishing. I mean, it's yeah. That's you're, the other you're, side you're, of it. You're relinquishing because you're essentially the cast of everything that you've done up to that point, and now. Yeah. You're you're placing your you, you know you're creating a relationship with with you know with Stephen or Gary Cole or you know or or about like well this is the thing in my head now you yeah. do your version of that is was that weird or did you did you, were you able to let that go I mean that was like I had sort of eased into that because like on King of the Hill there were a lot of uh, we had a lot of really good actors on Beavis and Butthead I did most of the voices myself right. and occasionally people would come in but King of the Hill it was like you know, Stephen Root, Kathy and Jimmy, you know, Dave Herman, all these, Johnny Hardwick, they, these, 
so I was working with other actors, so I kind of kind of got kind of learned about you know working with actors on that a little bit um but yeah it was you know i'm not like i mean to me the casting process is my least favorite part of it when you're i i, I mean I, I sitting through casting sessions because it's just i mean they're looking for any sign on your face of how they did and sometimes they're really good but they're not right for the part you want to tell them that but that's going to sound just like bullshit and right you, so it's it's uh but you know, once you get good actors or people who are right for the part, I think I, I don't. I mean, I, I think I felt like when Gary Cole came in and read for Lumberg for Office Space, I just thought, "Oh my God, this is so good. This is like this is better than what I." He was sort of imitating what I had done in the cartoons, but it was I thought it was just another level up from what I had done. And and same thing with Stephen Root playing Milton. I just thought, "Wow, this is this could be something really." special here and and so yeah i mean sometimes yeah it's i going from animation to that yeah sometimes i have this urge to just be more controlling and just say no say you know give them line readings and things that you're not (laughs) supposed to do but i i i think uh there's like it's almost uh, the grass is always greener on the other side like middle of shooting silicon valley last season i was just thinking god i should just do animation again <laughs> these 16 hour days of an animation you don't have to get up at five thirty in the morning and come to a you know like you can you can kind of you know you can work late if you have to get up early if you want to i mean you, you it, it's not like it's not like you have 50 people and teamsters and trucks and everything waiting for you and if you're 15 minutes late it costs the production a ton of money and there's right. all these people twiddling their thumbs you know it's it's more pressure live action you know it's it's more immediate and it's a lot more pressure but that can be kind of good too that can be kind of invigorating and how did you not cast yourself in more prominent roles like in office space how did you not play any well, of the main i mean you're in it but yeah i mean originally like we were talking about that because i did done lumberg and milton in the shorts um about me playing one of those and but i, I was I, I actually at the first table read I was going to read the part of Milton the first read through of the of the script and Stephen Root was there to to play the hypnotist and a couple other people and just at the last minute I just thought like I don't think I want to I think Stephen Root should do this like I knew him well enough at that point I just and I just took him in the other room and showed him a tape of the shorts and I remember seeing him watch the TV and he's like rewinding it and he's just starting to starting to just mutter and do this thing and I said yeah this is great let's and and then he just killed it and so i knew he was going to be milton and yeah i didn't um i was kind of hesitant about even casting myself as the as the manager at the tchotchke's place but that was really just kind of i'd i'd written that those scenes sort of last minute and had a bunch of people read for him and no one was doing it everyone was kind of trying too hard to put comedy into it instead of just playing it as a passive aggressive boss and so i just i just decided to play that one more out of necessity really (laughs) (laughs) i still use that i mean i I use that platitude now of i'll say if something like like with the if i'm writing jokes or is there something on the show and it's just like two jokes too many i was like go too much flair like i still (laughs) like i you i i actually still use that as a there's too much. There's too much flair, you know. And yeah, that was a that was a real 
That was a real thing that TGI Fridays had. It's they a, called it pieces of flair, and you had to wear fifty. You had to. There was. You, they didn't have yeah. enough flair. I was working with uh, Brent Forrester, who's a really good writer, and he was on King of the Hill, and and he was in Austin, and he. I just said, uh, I said, hey, if you get a chance, because I was kind of too chicken to go into the TGI Fridays and ask them. I'd written the thing about the we're not in Kansas anymore, right? And I said, you know, they they all wear those buttons, and they clearly must have to they don't do those on their own there must be some corporate thing that says wear some buttons and <laughs> and uh he was about to fly back and he was at my studio and i said hey did you ever did you ever make it to tgi fridays and he said oh yeah and I said so what's the buttons he said yeah they they're required to wear 15 of them but everybody like <laughs> and a hat can count as flair and, and uh so, so if you have suspenders and a hat then you you've got 13 left that you have to <laughs> buttons that you have to put anyway they were, and that's where that came from and but um yeah i i and i and i and i i i and i like to use the opposite to dress down something that has too much of that it's like this doesn't need 15 jokes yeah there's too much a flair in this thing it's uh i mean it's it, 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 an it, odd term piece it, of flair piece of flair but it's about noticing you know it's really just about noticing those little bits of authentic things that actually happen that people you know Obviously, people had noticed that. No one had pointed it out yet. You know, people yeah, notice I, that without realizing that they're noticing it. Yeah, I guess I tune into a lot of that stuff that just, you know, um, and maybe that's kind of a, a cartoonist thing. Like, like you know, Robert Crumb used to talk about and draw, like, all these the transformers on telephone poles, all these ugly things that are everywhere that, you know, were never really built to be looked at, but they're just in our face all the time. And, yeah, this is, those kind of details, I guess, interest me for whatever reason did you uh I, i've been a fan of silicon valley since minute one episode one N- not not only because you're involved but a bunch of my friends are also involved oh, yeah, yeah. but it also just happens to be i mean like watching it's like watching everyone fire on all of their cylinders together it's yeah like the, they're the, a great the, ensemble the, the writing and then the and then the the performance and where they take it and and then all of them already knowing each other and working together like it's yeah. it's it's such a it's a very rare special thing that happened with that show. Yeah, I feel like it's it really all clicked like it fell into place and I mean I when I was doing the casting um I think I might have said this to you when we were on the that panel but like I everybody um let's see Zach, Josh Brenner, uh Martin Starr, Kumail um, they all read for TJ's part, everybody except for Thomas, all the main guys. And, but they all had a different way of doing it, and, uh, and I had no idea these guys knew each other. I had worked with TJ before, and Thomas did some voices on Beavis and Butthead, and there was an animated thing that I was helping him develop a few years ago. But I didn't even know those two knew each other, uh, let alone everybody else. It, so it was cast purely on auditions, but... Um, it just it all came they well each of them had their own kind of version of a nerd their own interpretation of reading when they were reading for Ehrlich and uh so I thought okay like especially like Martin Starr when he came in and read I thought okay that's something really unique that's like a that's that's like the guys that were hanging out at the computer center at UCSD who are kind of arrogant and prickly and (laughs) and uh hate everybody and you know like I thought like wow if I could that's that's something really good but it's not Ehrlich, let's just have it be this other... Uh, John Altschuler had talked about having a Satanist character, which I thought was really funny. And so 
<laughs> so I thought, let's make him that. And then Kumail was just great. I, I thought, okay, let's just make a character, and it's going to be Kumail's character. And so it was – and then went back and rewrote it to kind of suit these this ensemble, you know. And, um, yeah, really, uh, I feel like it's – I don't know, it's like the Rolling Stones or something. Like everybody – they're all – it just all clicks as a as a group really well. Well, and that that character is such a dominant. It, to me, it feels like a very dominant part of T, of who TJ is. Yeah, where it's just like <laughs> you never know exactly how he's going to come. I mean, and I, I adore TJ. He's, yeah, <laughs> I absolutely love him, and he's going to come back on the podcast really oh, cool. soon. But he is a tornado of of energy and, oh, and I know. ideas. Yeah, I mean, no, he's he's the guy was just born funny. He he just. It, he, I'd done a, a small movie with him, came out in 2009, and he had, you know, both that and this, he, he, he auditioned for, and I, it wasn't how I imagined it in my head, but he's just so funny. And, and we, and again, actually with this, like when he, okay, it's, you know, we said, let's make him Ehrlich, and then we sort of wrote for TJ, you know, kind of yeah. tailored it to him. And, you know, he, he, uh, I mean, he's just so funny. I remember I was showing the first episode to my my brother, who's lived in Japan forever, and he didn't know he'd never seen T.J. Miller. He hadn't seen the movie I'd done in two thousand nine, and I, I just show him the scene, and T.J. just walks around the corner into the room, hasn't even spoken yet. My brother like just goes, "Oh, that guy's funny," <laughs> <laughs> and there was nothing, you know. He's got that. Uh, it's almost like Bill Murray or something, you know. He just he's he's just funny. I don't know. He he. Uh, yeah, really talented guy. But um yeah, they all they're uh, you know, they're a handful. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how what was just it is you know, however you want to I'm sure you've told this a million times before, so, but I just want to know. Oh, sure. How did you get to the the season the first season finale? As soon as I saw as soon as I started to sense where the the greatest dick joke in the history of entertainment was beginning to unfold, I was I, I mean I, I stood like my mouth like no they're not oh my god like completely yeah I mean I was I was pounding like I can't believe this is I mean like watching that watching that unfold because it's I mean not only is it just not only is it an incredibly layered, <laughs> the, like like the kind of just like wrapping everything up in a beautiful dick shaped bow, <laughs> but also I'm sure you probably heard from a lot of, uh, you know, coders like, oh well, that's the kind of shit that we that's the kind yeah, of yeah. shit that actually you spend your time thinking about. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's a lot of. Um yeah, when I when I was in college, you know, especially when you're like, you know, you're staring at the Schrodinger equation forever or something, and you just start you you, it's very easy to just go to something really stupid, and <laughs> but then you'll start nerding out on that. But yeah, that that came about um, when when we started out, we were talking about, you know, we were at some point we were talking about the season finale, and I kept saying that I wanted to have some kind of beautiful mind moment like you know in that movie where he it, his thing is about the way men and women are in bars but if, with something silly or some kind of epiphany over something really dumb you know i didn't know what it was but um one of the writers uh matteo borghese was 
talking, not even, he was just having a conversation with somebody. Alec was in the room, I wasn't there, and it, it wasn't pitching for the show. He was just talking about him and his roommate saying that you could actually jack off four guys at once <laughs> if they put their dicks tip to tip. And Alec then came to me and said, I, th- I think I've got, <laughs> well, what do you think about this? And I, I just thought, oh my God, that could just be, that's perfect. Like, it's, and, and then we just, um, we just started, we actually sat in the writer's room. I remember Dan O'Keefe and I were in there talking about angles and this and that. And then Alec came in and he started chiming in. And I think Clay Tarver was there, came in next. And we were just really drawing on the boards and doing all that stuff that they're doing in the, in the room. Um, a lot of that was just us. We were really having those exact, like, you know, like, no, it's actually the distance to floor. And it's actually the, if a taller guy, but if the complimentary shaft angle and all this stuff. <laughs> and then, uh, and we had, and then we, um, we just kept getting just, just juvenile schoolboy conversations that we just kept having. It. We, we were having, we, we'd be trying to solve some other problem with the story, and then, oh, let's talk about the dicks again. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's yeah. you know, I'm always, I, I, I'm ashamed at the at the number of dick jokes that I will write. That's you know, it's unfortunately where my brain always goes and I'm, I'm always disappointed in myself until I see something like that. And then I feel and I'm like, Oh, see, it can be, you know, like you can, yeah. you can, you can make a, you, you can build a gorgeous, you know, a, a gorgeous structure that just happens to be tied together with little dicks, you know, like it, it yeah. it's, you, you can have the most highbrow. It's just the disparity between the most highbrow thing in the world and the lowest brow thing in the world, and but they yeah. need each other in order to work and solve the problem. Oh, I know. It's just it's so it's so funny. And and we were the other the other epiphany that I had like we in the editing of it they, they had act, the guys had actually improved a lot. You know, like oh, why are you pointing them at your mouth? Why do all this kind of stuff? And and um and a lot of that was in there. And then something was bugging me and um. We realized it just got funnier if it was purely about them. If there were no awareness that they're saying anything, no cracking a joke about your mouth. But like there was a line, like, oh, "Are there four dudes in there?" And, and, and we en- ended up just taking all of that out and making it purely. The more we made it purely about solving the problem, because because the way I saw it was that they're they're really upset about something and they're kind of taking comfort in just pro- solving a problem. That's I think that's the way a lot of engineers so you're take are. Out it's some like flare. <laughs> took out the flare exactly. We uh, and and I think we got the optimal tip to tip efficiency of the scene with, now, with just yeah. I assume dry. that at this point, some engineers somewhere have sent you an entire treatise on like, well, if you really well, yeah. wanted to, this is exactly how you would. Well, the the our guy Vanith Masra, who is kind of our he's he's now he's now working at IBM. He's a brilliant PhD guy at Stanford and and uh I got to know him through the show and and he he was he was uh we sent him his task was to just come up with some uh some more equations to put on the dry erase board and he just <laughs> went so deep into this <laughs> like I don't I don't think anybody could challenge his there's a it's I tweeted it there's a he published uh there's a website where you put you know dissertations whatever and he he published a thing on there that's all very legit on the most efficient way to jack off uh, 
n number of people. Uh, I never got, but it's it's ridiculous. But there, what, that came after we had done the episode. But he, one of the equations he put on the, it's on the board, and Kumail was supposed to point to it and say, "This is the best metric for stamina." And he said, "What does this mean?" And I actually, this, if you, you were asking about, does my degree ever come in handy? Yeah. This, I was actually, I was a little bit proud of myself. I looked so. I said, you know what? Let me figure this out. I got to figure out what this means because, and I didn't get beneath on the phone. I did, but um, it's interesting because it's a curve. You can see it. It's there's a factor that you plug into another equation that has the time since your last ejaculation, your age, and uh, but and the, this alpha factor, and then there's this this graph, and so the x-axis is your age so zero like it starts at infinity because you can't ejaculate when you're just born (laughs) and then it goes like this it takes it's like a bathtub curve and then it starts to go up as you get older and you plug that into this other formula and i remember looking at going like oh my god this actually makes sense this isn't bullshit this they thought about this a lot and gave us and i was like happily like kumail check this out this is you know kumail did computer science he's able to understand the math of it and I don't think it affected his reading of the line. This is the best metric for stamina, but no, but that's- it was kind of cool that Kumail actually wanted to know. He wanted to know what he was pointing at, and I was like, okay, that's legit. And but you know, you some can- people were going like, oh, he's being all actory or whatever. But it was really, it was really cool that. Anyway, no, you you can tell when something is authentic. Like you, you know, as a viewer, without yeah. uh, without going, that is authentic. Like you sense, yeah. you know, like there's some the fact that. You know, the details that the formulas worked and that Kumail understood them, you, you, there's yeah, a different experience than watching just actors just read lines. Spouting they lines. Spouting off. Yeah, and, I know. Well, oh, they just put some gibberish in the background. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't really mean anything. Like, it, you, you know, you can tell without actually knowing that, you're, that you can tell. Yeah, I think it's true. I think there's some kind of nuance to something that's, that's real that, like, like I've, I've been saying, like, I, when Do the Right Thing came out, it was, it was around the time I was starting to do anim, animation, and I, I had never been to Brooklyn or wherever it's set. I, but watching it, I was just like, this seems real. I don't know. Like it seems like whoever did this is basing this on a real thing, even though I'd never been there. You know, like you could just kind of tell it had that feel. And I think, I think if you, yeah, I think, uh, you know, I'm glad we try to get the details right because I think it does, and I think ultimately makes it funnier too, you know. Yeah, when it's it, it's based in something at least hopefully believable. Well, it's it's you know what uh, John Flansburg referred to from a lot of they might be giant stuff is like oh fact based songs like the more <laughs> the more factual something is. Oh, I've never heard that. That's <laughs> yeah. He he referred to their music as like oh we write a lot of fact based songs. I'm like and I'd never thought of it that way. I'm like oh of course you do, of course you do. Oh wow, you yeah. know and and there's something really funny about. The more factual you get about something in some type of art, you know, like couched in something that's a, it's a kind of a complimentary art piece, it becomes funnier. It's like yeah. just, it's just funnier the more detailed it becomes. Yeah, I agree. I, I uh, need to remind the actors of that. <laughs> no, I mean, does it, do they, you, uh, do you, do, when you, when you did the first season, it was obviously it's. A, I think any time a show can come together and work, like oh wow, that actually is a very hard thing to do. It's it's almost a it's almost. Oh, a, I know, yeah. So to then go, all right, now you get another season. Now go do it again. You know, I mean, does it? Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's really hitting me on the third season. Actually, like I, I was, 
the first season I was just so happy with the show and just how it all came together and and uh I didn't Alec my you know my partner on Alec Berg I think he was feeling the pressure of season two more than I was at first then I started to really feel it toward when we were getting scrambling to to write the last few episodes but um yeah now now it's starting to occur to me like oh my god another we have to start writing in like three weeks we just finished last oh week <laughs> oh my god but uh there's no time for you to do anything else, right? You're just pretty much focused on this. Not really. I mean, yeah, it's it's uh, yeah, it's weird that King of the Hill we do one year we did 24 episodes, and even though this is it's just 10, somehow it feels like making three movies. You know, it's it's right. uh, I guess you just you know you stress out as much as possible, no matter what the schedule is. <laughs> well, a King of the Hill episode can be very self-contained. Well, that's the other thing. Those, yeah, we weren't doing series arcs with that really i mean we a little bit but not not really and so so that yeah that was a little bit more um yeah that that was it's it's different when yeah this is something where we kind of have to write it as one big piece so that's the way it's, a lot of tv shows are just we didn't even when the show started we just kind of that it just sort of happened it just that seems like what it needed to be is is a story you know about and I assume an arc. Silicon Valley itself, as an entity, has probably largely accepted this show, right? I mean, it seems... Yeah, it seems like they have, yeah. Like, like we, we, yeah, we get a lot of love from, like, Sergey and Larry, the Google founders, where they wore a Pied Piper and Hooli t-shirts for their <laughs> Ice Bucket Challenge, and Mark Zuckerberg, I've heard from a lot of people, wears a Pied Piper t-shirt, walking I mean, on it's, Facebook. And, it's really interesting that it, you've done something that I think... Most like if you would pitch the show to a regular network, they might be like, "Oh, no one's gonna fucking get this. No one's gonna get. No oh, one's yeah. gonna get inside Silicon Valley jokes." And you go, "No, but there's a there's a way to you figured out a way to do a, a very multi tiered thing where it's like you know you can get these entry level jokes just based purely on the comedy of these characters. If you happen to know anything about this world, there's this whole other stratum of." comedy that you'll go oh my god i know that guy and that guy yeah and this thing and that happens yeah and i think i think there are you know the programmer nerd type people the super brainy people i, I think they're everywhere and i i think someone who's never been to silicon valley whatever city they're in can go oh that's like if that guy I knew in high school suddenly had a billion dollars or if that person was you know caught up in a bidding war and so i think Hopefully it's relatable whether you've – I mean I, I know people in Austin who uh, have nothing to do with Silicon Valley at all that love the show that you you know, you know wouldn't – I mean a, a guy I know who's like a really great chef. He's like – you know, watches it religiously and like just – so I, I think seems to be reaching a pretty broad audience. Is that a conscious decision when you – think well we have to balance the number of inside jokes with the number of more accessible jokes or do you not do you not think of it that way i do a little bit i mean sometimes um like we have a tech consultant who will say like oh here, here's what they would be saying but you know i'll say well that they wouldn't be saying that to somebody who already knows it that's very you know like i, I try to i mean there's some a lot of times when they're having a lot of tech speak i you know we try to make it so that there's something like there was the sixth episode of the first season. There was a, this really young coder that comes in that they hire and, and they're having, but oh right, a, a lot of those scenes are about, you know, 
the character Richard being threatened by this younger guy. So it's not really about the tech talk. It's about this kind of little pissing match they're in, you know? And I, th- I mean, that's just an example of, I, I think, I, well, yeah, there's definitely a conscious effort to say, you know, um, to make it not so inside that you don't get it. But I, I also think, you know, I mean, I'm, it was a long time ago that I was an engineer. I, I don't know a lot about the way it is now. So, I mean, I, and, and Alec is, his brother worked for Paul Allen and he's been close to tech, but he never worked in it. So it's, I think it kind of helps that we actually aren't, you know, we have to, we have to, we're ignorant enough to, <laughs> to kind of <laughs> simulate the audience. <laughs> but also to be able to recognize like what, it's like yeah. important to be able to recognize like, well, this is too, or this doesn't work, or this is, or, or skipping yeah. away and going, this is what this is really about more so than the lingo that needs to be in here. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's usually there's some kind of emotion attached to it or something that the character wants or doesn't want. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's like Alec was saying, we're basically doing a show about something that's inherently unfilmable people sitting there <laughs> programming like I mean, it's, but that's that, that challenge i think creates like an interest some interesting stuff because you have to look elsewhere it's not like a you know a bunch of hot young people working at an ad agency dating and stuff you know it's it's just a different find different areas for comedy that maybe other shows haven't well it's also the it's sort of the exact it's sort of the diametrical opposite of something like like csi cyber where they're like just say the word just say the term dark web a lot and that's a thing that you know just say the word cyber you know how people throw the word net and cyber around you know it's it's like they yeah there's a there's a also a um alec was telling me there's some writers that have they call it csi drinking game which is when when the natural response to what a character is saying would be, yeah, I know, I work here. <laughs> you, you drink? Because like someone would go like, like uh, I'm going to take the fingerprints and run them through our blah, 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 and blah, 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 blah. Like that someone would just go, yeah, I know, I work here. Why are you telling us? <laughs> that's an amazing so, game. So we're always having the, like, we'll be writing something and go like, oh, that's a little too CSI drinking game. <laughs> that's genuine. Of course, of course. Yeah, I know. I, <laughs> I don't know how many times you're watching that, and you're like, "Well, why is she telling him that?" You you've just, you're taking, you're wasting yeah. so much time. You need to be saving this person from the. There was a. Uh, I, I mean, I thought Imitation Game was great, but there was one. Like, I'm so aware because that's that's similar to what we're doing, writing about you know technical stuff. But there's a there's a scene in there where the guys are going like. We're taking the first letter and assigning that. To, I mean, we're taking the most common letters and assigning that to blah blah blah. And I'm, it was basically like what you learn in the first five minutes of your first cryptography class, right? And I was just like expecting someone to go, "Yeah, I know. <laughs> we work here. We're part of the government team to." Is there a reason to you're crack this? <laughs> wasting everyone's time here. But yeah, there's there's a. Uh, I think that's. I'm just. That's how hypersensitive I am to that now because that was a really good movie but I, I that's the yeah the CSI drinking game <laughs> but I, I feel like that's applicable to any to most types of writing that, it, that you have to you have to understand like yeah. you have to understand without direct exposition how do you explain what's going on it's just storytelling yeah, it's how, really, you, it's, how do you get the story across without going this is the story yeah. I'm telling you now <laughs> yeah. and that is that person and this is, the, this is, the, this is these yeah. things I think it's, it's really tricky that's why you know any kind of uh a trial is is a really 
uh, it's not easy to write, but it's it's we, we have a. I won't give too much away. I don't. When is this airing? I don't know. Is it airing Monday? Give some away. Yeah, we have a, give a little tease. Yeah, you know there might be some version of a of a trial, and uh, you know it's it's writing those. It's like, oh, this is great. We can just have a lawyer come out and say, <laughs> here's, here's what happened, and here's the case, and you know, um, it's. Uh, I, I realize why there's you know you. Well, I mean, medical dramas and courtroom dramas are legal dramas are. I think the reason that there are obviously there the reason that there are so many of those shows is you get a new story you can walk in the door each week you know there's yeah. uh, someone comes in with an injury or some you know um or they've got a new case and it's the cases legal cases are interesting and you can have people explain to the audience while they're explaining it to the judge <laughs> <laughs> well uh it was wonderful to have you here and yeah, thanks everyone should watch silicon valley if they're not which is, uh, is it Sunday nights at 10.30 or 9.30? Uh, Sunday nights at 10 after Game of Thrones. At 10, so right after Game of Thrones. So it comes on, you can watch it on the West Coast at 7, I think, because the East Coast feed, but yeah. So watch, uh, watch Game of Thrones, and when atrocious things happen to characters that you like, <laughs> and you feel sad and dirty inside, then you can then watch Silicon cleanse Valley. Will, will <laughs> cleanse your palate and bring you right back into the world, into a happy place. Um, I always remember I, I don't know why I'm telling you this because I think your response will just be like oh okay I don't know why I'm sharing this with you but, it, <laughs> but when I worked on Singled Out there sometimes things would happen where we would want to Singled Out was a very um, it was a very body show for its time <laughs> uh, and sometimes we would try to do things and they, they would go oh well you know standards they won't let you do that and I would go but I just saw Beavis jam his hand in his shorts and start jerking off vigorously last night if he was a butt And they would go, oh, well, he, that's an animated character. I'm like, he was still jerking off. I was not asking to jerk off on the show, by the way. But it was just, it was oh, just something, funny. which I felt was benign. But their justification was like, I, oh, well, they're animated. So it's, it, you, it's not the same. I, it's weird because I would get the same thing. Like they told us we could not. We had a thing where the Secret Service was going to pull guns on him. We had another one where the cops were going to pull guns on him, and they had this whole violence thing, like, you can't show guns, don't no guns. And I'm like, but they're cops. <laughs> and they said, no guns, you can't show guns. And then there was an episode of that show, The State, and a cop pulls a gun out, and I was like, how come The State can do that? And then they said kind of the, well, that's live action, you're animated. <laughs> that's so we, they, that, that would be <laughs> to know that their answer was, really, if you strip it away, I don't know. Yeah, uh, It's just because they a double did it. standard, yeah, and they we just it, don't want <laughs> And it's too late for us to change it, so shut the fuck up and just go host this dumb show. By the way, the thing with the hands in the pants was quickly removed. After, oh, was it? Yeah, like... That was a <laughs> cutaway. Exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, that was a cutaway, and and it was like <laughs> somebody had done that. One of the animators did that, like as a I don't even remember what, like <laughs> God. And, and we put that in. It's like oh, he's scratching. He's not jacking off. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that that was I wasn't too proud of that one. That was <laughs> that wasn't. A, Where do you think they would have? How, how do you think they would have grown up? Think they would have accidentally died in some terrible accident? Yeah, probably. I mean, I, I, I kind of, I can imagine them being really old, like in their seventies and eighties, and maybe like a little older than they were. But it's the in between part that I don't. <laughs> dirty old man, I could totally see him as. I thought Butthead, like maybe some really low level sales position, and then I just don't know how Beavis would get by. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. I don't have an answer for Beavis at thirty five. <laughs>
<laughs> I don't know what that would be. He could have Forrest Gumped his way through. Yeah, you know, he could like, get really lucky, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> you never know. Get injured and get a settlement or something. <laughs> <laughs> he uh, he got a, he, he stumbled across a shrimping boat, and that, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, opened it. Something like that would probably yeah, that would make sense. I just. I don't know what kind of job or anything. Yeah. The Cornholio Shrimping Company. Postal worker. Or yeah. yeah. Uh, if you ever want to come back on and hang out, you're welcome anytime. Oh, thank uh, you. This is fun. It's always, it's always really fun. You're, you're one of those comedy people that is, you don't have the stand-up gene where, like, if you're in a room with people, <laughs> it's not like, it's not like, Oh, my, you know, Mike Judge is going to try to dominate the conversation with jokes. Oh no, I don't. I, but you, but <laughs> I but but the, the stuff that you say is so incisive, and it's like when it comes out, it's really. I always admire that kind of. Uh, I always admire that type of person because I'm. I I work in the numbers game. It's like I'll say <laughs> ten things, and hopefully two of them are funny, and then I can go home happy. You know, but it's just yeah, a I different. Don't know. Well, thank you. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. I don't. I'm, I'm not always. Uh, I strike out. <laughs> not, always on. not this time, Mike Judge. All right. Thank uh, you. We, you know, we end the podcast by telling people to enjoy their burrito. Would you mind doing that for us, please? Say enjoy your burrito? That's all you have to say. Uh, okay. Um, here, I'll do it. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, enjoy your burrito. <laughs> I can't tell you how much I was hoping that you would do that, but I didn't want to directly ask you to do it. Uh, but thank you for right. making my month. <laughs> Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. Behind every successful business is a story, and some of them might surprise you. Like how Chobani's first yogurt factory was discovered on a piece of junk mail, or how the founder of the multi-million dollar cosmetics brand Drunk Elephant was told by everyone, including her own mother, that the name sounded like a dive bar. I'm Guy Raz, and on my show, How I Built This, I talk to founders behind the world's biggest companies and brands to learn the real stories of how they built them. In each episode, you'll hear entrepreneurs share moments of doubt and failure and talk about how they were able to overcome them on their way to the top. How I Built This is like a masterclass in innovation and creativity, a how-to guide for navigating life's challenges from the people who've done it all. Follow How I Built This on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to How I Built This early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus.